I want to talk to you today about maintaining unity in the body of Christ. And unity doesn't have to be a scary message. It can be a fun message. It can be um, something that uh, really shapes us and something that uh, is deemed a challenge that uh, we can try to go to work on. So um, I want to speak to you today out of Ephesians chapter 4. So if you'll open your Bibles there with me, I will read a few choice verses. Ephesians 4. Subtitle in my Bible, maybe in yours, says the unity in, in the body of Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning and we open up this text and uh, sometimes it can seem a little bit intimidating. Maybe it's uh, just because there's such a great challenge there for us as the body of Christ. Uh, But our lives are not an experiment to you, uh, and the church is not a test drive. Um, You uh, know how you want it to run. You know how our our lives uh, want. uh, You know how you want our lives to be run, and um, it all begins and ends with unity in the body of Christ, coming together as believers uh, through the common bond of our Savior and all the blessings we have therein. Uh, So, Lord, this morning, um, I just pray that uh, you would. Open our hearts and speak to us and uh, tap on our shoulders and inform us of what we need to do, Lord, to uh, maintain unity in the body of Christ. Such an important topic. It's such an important theme. And uh, I just pray that uh, these words would be a blessing and that you would speak through me today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, a song that uh, has been sung in the church and around campfires over the years is uh, one that you might uh, think, yeah, I know that song. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that all unity may be one day restored, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Does that song sound familiar to anybody? I'm pretty sure it does. And it's a great song, great and meaningful lyrics. But the fact is, The fact is that despite uh, all our prayers and hopes for unity and a desire to get along, right, there's been a great deal of disunity in the church over the years. Can you believe that? Let me tell you something that's even worse. It's even true of Baptist churches. Yeah, I know. I was just as stunned as you are to hear that. There's almost uh, 20 different Baptist denominations in Canada. And there's at least a hundred or so more in the United States, but then they like to do it bigger and better down there anyway. Anyway, uh, I was reading about a church who were uh, a part of the Church of God umbrella, and uh, they had, had a split. And so the time came for them to name a new group that had broken off of the Church of God. And so they thought they'd call it the True Church of God. True story, okay? And then that group split, and so what to do, what to do, they thought, ah, okay, 
We'll call it the one and only true church of God. I mean, what's next? The uh, one and only, right? <laughs> the one and only in, instead of the only? Where does it end, right? We just keep getting uh, more and more diversified as denominations, right? Small wonder, then, why the Apostle Paul wrote on the subject of unity in the body of Christ. And we'll find that theme, actually, in many of his New Testament letters. And uh, because unity was, was just such a big issue in Paul's day, just as it is for us in this day and time. And uh, just by way of an overview and context of this New Testament letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians folds nicely into two parts. Uh, the first three chapters have to do with doctrinal stuff, so like teachings and things like that, while the second half of the book from chapters 4 to 6 uh, is mainly to do with practical applications. So the first part of the book is concerned with our riches in Christ, and the second part of the book is concerned with our walk with Christ. So Paul was trying to get his readers to understand all that they had in Christ, uh, that we might grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is, and that we'd know this love that surpasses knowledge, and that we'd be filled to the measure and all the fullness of God. And that's kind of the summit of the Christian experience, right? It doesn't get any better than that for us who believe in Jesus and who are born again. And that's why... Ephesians has often been called the Alps of the New Testament because it's, it's spiritual high ground that Paul is taking us to there. And he's bringing us up there and he's showing us the scenery of all the blessings, right? Saying, look out and look at all the blessings in Christ that you possess, church. Have a look at that on account of your faith in Him. But then we arrive at chapter 4 and from there onward, Paul, as we said, was concerned with practical application. That is, what do we do with what we have and what we know spiritually with Christ? And chapter 4 begins with the theme and reality of Christ in us, right? If we are a Christian, if we are born again, the Holy Spirit is alive in us. We have Jesus in us. And uh, that's what Paul wants to talk about. And with that comes that great challenge of living our lives in a worthy manner, given who we are and the calling that we've received as God's people. And there's no greater challenge. There's no greater challenge in the church than for God's people to remain unified. Um, our task to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Because without unity, without unity, it's a great struggle, right? It's a great struggle to cultivate a positive witness and ministry within the church and the surrounding area in which the church is placed in, right? The town and the city or whatever it might be. We live in a world uh, where there's a lot of heartache, right? There's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of difficulty, and a lot of hurting and fractured people come to church and they want to find at the church a place where there's rest and there's sanctuary and there's peace and there's hope. I think people expect to find those things when they come to church. I remember a guy who came to a church that I was pastoring, and uh, he was going through a lot of hard stuff in his life. And uh, so I asked him, I said, what brought you in today? And he said uh, that it was the flowers outside the church. It was the flowers. 
And um, this gentleman just kind of liked the way the flower bed looked. And I could hardly believe it. I was hoping, you know, he'd say something like, well, I heard your preaching, you know, from across the parking lot, you know. And, or, uh, you know, uh, I heard the worship music just funneling out of the church and I thought I'd come in. But no, it was the flowers. It was the flowers. And, uh, you know, so I thought, okay, Lord, whatever works, you know. <laughs> it doesn't have to be my preaching or the worship music if it's flowers. You can use flowers. That's great. Now, now, now flowers are nice, but... Isn't it great for people to be able to come to a place where they can find meaning and purpose and hope for their lives and learn about the greatest love of all that is Jesus Christ and just be ministered to? That's, that's why the church exists. This is why Lakeside exists right where it does. And so it shouldn't be any wonder why Satan, why Satan tries to break things up in the church, divide us up. There's a thought that Satan tempts Christians with two great temptations. The first one being in the area of sexual sin, and the second one being in this area of fostering disunity amongst the body of Christ. Because the first will cast doubt on the character of the Christian, and the second will bring the integrity of the church into ill repute. And so quite appropriately, Paul urges us here in Ephesians 4 to try to maintain our witness and unity as the body and the bride of Christ. How can we do that? Well, the Apostle begins with you and me. He begins with our lives. Unity starts, Paul says, with our conduct, with, with who we are in ourselves, who we are in Christ. And I think there's this theological misconception that unity is something that God's people accomplish, something that, that we make happen. But that is actually not the case. We don't make that unity. God already has. We're already unified in one body, the church, through Christ, you see. But the task that lay ever before us as believers in Jesus, as Christians, is one that calls us to to maintain that unity that we already have. It's uh, quite the task, but it's uh, something that we're all called to. And unity begins with you and I. Jesus bundled us up all together, and now we're charged with working at and protecting the binding that is around us through Him. So going back to chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul writes this again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul was, of course, writing from a jail cell. Acts 21 tells us that, and it tells us what happened. He was preaching the gospel. That's what the apostles did. But then Paul was arrested for allegedly inciting a riot in Jerusalem. And so the Roman authorities haul him off. They said, you're in trouble. You can't do that. We're taking you away. And they put him in prison. But then Paul appealed to Caesar, right? And so then he went on to Caesarea. And there he languished in prison for a few years. And after he was released, he went on a mission towards Rome, but he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And um, eventually, Paul does make it to Rome, where he wrote what's called the prison epistles, or letters, uh, that being Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Paul was not sitting on the beach of a tropical country sipping Kool-Aid. He's in prison writing these words. 
And he was probably under house arrest, which meant he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. That's what they did, especially with a notorious prisoner, someone like Paul. Paul was a dangerous man to Rome. He was a dangerous man because he had a lot of pull, had a lot of power, had a lot of influence. And uh, he could incite a riot with the snap of his fingers, right? And in, a, and, uh, in addition to that, um, he was facing trial in front of one of the most brutal and vicious leaders in the history of the world, Nero. Uh, Nero was a demon-possessed madman who murdered his own mother, and he kind of went downhill from there even more. And uh, he was responsible for murdering uh, many Christian men and women and children during his reign. So he's a nasty dude, and um, this is who Paul would be going before. And notice that nowhere in the letter of Ephesians do we see Paul trying to unload that on the church there. We don't see that anywhere. He kind of chose to keep that between him and the Lord. And instead, the apostle just goes into full pastoral, pastoral care mode, full pastoral care mode, and he just wants to communicate his concern for the Ephesians and for the body of Christ there. And out of that, comes this, this urging for them to live up to the calling that they had received by virtue of their faith in Christ. Paul was a man. Paul was a man who faced a heavy price for his commitment to Christ. And so his counsel and his wisdom today is, is worthy of being listened to. And uh, some, some, some scholars believe that when Paul was stoned, he was stoned a couple of times, but they believe that one particular time when he was stoned, uh, that he actually died, and then when the believers gathered around him and touched him, and he came back to life. Uh, that's a topic for another day. But um, Paul, Paul, uh, you know, bared his witness for Christ in the stripes that he wore. And as we said, you know, he, he paid a heavy price for his faith in Christ. And um, you know, we want to listen to him not just because he was called of God, but because he practiced what it was he preached. And I think we all want to see that in the preachers and the Bible teachers that we listen to. And so um, Paul went through a lot of things. He was shipwrecked as well. He received lashes. He was robbed. Um, and, and, and yet he still stood for Christ. Despite all the punishment, all the abuse that he received, he could still stand for Christ and fight for him. And out of this testimony arose the passion and the burden from which he wrote and spoke. One church, uh, early church leader, uh, church father rather, rather, called Theodora of Cyrene in the 5th century, wrote about this. And uh, he said this about the Apostle Paul. What the world counted as shame, he counted as the highest honor. And he gloried in his bonds for Christ, more than a king in his throne, more than a king in his crown. Such was his love for the Lord. That was Paul. So we can learn from him. And so it was out of this, this tested faithfulness in which Paul could say with great authority, not only to the people in Ephesus, to the first century church, but to you and I at Lakeside this morning in the 21st century, to live worthy of the calling we've received in Christ. And that word worthy in the original language means equal weight. In other words, walk the talk. Bring your talk up to where your walk is. Right? Equal weight, worthy. 
Walk in a manner that is consistent with your stance. We've been rescued from the darkness and brought into God's marvelous light. We've been taken out of death into life, and now we live as men and women of God in the truth of all that God has for us and has done for us. And we are members of his kingdom, and yet more, we are children of God with God as our Father. That is our glory, right? That's our glory, to know him, whom to know is life eternal. We have so much to be thankful for as Christians today. And so we need to live in a manner that is consistent with our privileged position in Christ as his body, as his church. And this is where the topic of unity comes into play. Many years ago, Mary Antoinette uh, ruled France in the late 1800s. And in a series of events, she uh, married into a royal family and her husband died and she became queen. But um, she still liked to get out a little bit. She liked to party. She wanted to be with the people of the country that she ruled. And so she'd like to go out and uh, she liked to remain incognito, of course. And so she had to disguise herself. And so she tried to go out and do this because she you know, really wanted to be amongst the people who she ruled. But she could not remain hid. What do you think gave her away? Any history students here? What gave Marie Antoinette away? Her manners? That's a good answer, but no. (laughs) It was her walk. It was her walk. It was the way she walked that gave her identity away. One biographer wrote, when she... Marie Antoinette walked. Her swift, purposeful gait was her trademark. She could never successfully disguise her identity at masked balls, for no matter how she dressed, she still walked like an empress, like a queen. Someone once said that the uh, godly walk is the greatest walk of all. Whatever you are going through, whatever I'm going through this morning and facing as a redeemed child of God, Paul says, whatever it is, let your walk match your talk and let your conduct be as a man or as a woman of God. Our godly conduct is our walk. And it should give our identity as a follower of Christ away to the world, to the watching world. Walking in a worthy manner is the first step towards maintaining unity in the church. Why? Because how we're walking with the Lord, the spiritual quality of that walk will inevitably affect how we're going to interact with and influence those around us in the body of Christ. And so the first step in unity is our own personal conduct, walking the talk, living a life worthy of the heavenly calling we've received. But then Paul goes on to talk about maintaining unity through our treatment of others by our conduct. Look back with me at verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is a tall order. This is tough teaching. Anyone else feel like that? I'll just sit back and watch the arms slowly raise, right? Yeah, it sure is. This is a tall order. Someone witty once uh, said that to dwell above with the saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, uh, that's a 
different story or another story. Oh, so sad, right? (laughs) But God puts us in his body to help us become more of the people he wants us to be. Can you believe that? Apparently, after we come to Christ, we're not all perfect, and so we need to get some work done on us. And that work happens in the body of Christ, in the church. We come from different backgrounds. Uh, We may think differently. We have different likes and dislikes, different burdens and maturity levels. And yet God throws us all together into the church. Woohoo! Is it any wonder, right? Is it any wonder we have difficulty sometimes? Listen, God puts us in the church for what we can do for the church, but also for what the church can do for us, right? We need one another. Anyone ever see a stonemason at work? Uh, now, they take these piles of rocks, right, and they start whacking them and, you know, these different sizes of rocks and shapes of stones, and they beat them and fit them in and push them in, and they make a pattern out of these rocks. And, you know, they toss them away, and then they keep doing what they're doing, moving things around, shifting things around. They're kind of husky guys, and they sweat a lot. And then when they're all done, they hose it down, and voila, this this beautiful stonework, right? Beautiful stone chimney or fireplace or entrance area to your home. All made of, of misshapen rocks and stones. But when put into the hands of a master craftsman, workman, they come together to make to make something that is amazing to behold. Isn't that similar to the church? Isn't that similar? We're not all here because we all agree on the same things, perhaps, right? I mean, if we all agreed, only one of us would be necessary. (laughs) Think about that. But it's amongst our fellow rocks, right? Amongst our fellow Christians that we've been placed in and around, that we become the men and women of God that He wants us to be. And And that beautiful pattern of unity in diversity as the church that God holds out to the world for the world to marvel at. Look at my bride. Isn't she beautiful? We make room for each other and our lives get close to other lives and we learn from each other and we change our ways and we give and take. And Paul, in effect, is saying that for unity to be strong in the church, there has to be a certain something we would call Grace. Now, grace doesn't appear here in this passage, but it's here, right? Grace, God's favor, our ability to work at maintaining unity in the church requires that we give grace to everyone and receive grace back from everyone. Grace going out, grace being received. What does grace in action look like? Well, Paul shows us by listing a few of these graces here in Ephesians 4. The first grace the apostle mentions in verse 2 is that we need to be humble. We need to recognize that our way is not always the right way, nor is it always the best way. There are many things that can get, that can get done in life, and it's part of a humble take on life to recognize that it doesn't have to be the way that we want it to be. The Greeks in Paul's day had no patience for humility. For the Greeks, only slaves were humble. If you were not a slave, you didn't need to be humble. And yet we're to be humble as Christians. Why? Because Jesus was humble. Yes, at times he was audacious. Yes, at times Jesus was angry. Yes, at times Jesus was fed up 
and forceful and not always politically correct for his culture, especially when he rebuked the Pharisees, let me tell you. But our Lord was humble. I like to say that any sinless, perfect, holy God who could stoop to the level of human beings to save, to save said human being is a humble God. Our attitude or mind then should be like that of Christ's. And I want to uh, read you, if you flip over to Colossians, uh, quickly Colossians 2, sorry, Philippians 2. I'm going to read you just a, a few verses here. Paul once again writing, Philippians 2 verse 6. This is the mind of Christ, right? Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That was Jesus. The Romans knew of no more humiliating a way to take life than to put one on a cross and to let them suffer and die. And that is what they did with our Lord, of course. And that's why Jesus humbled himself in many ways. And if we're going to maintain unity in the body of Christ, we'll need to heed Paul's call here in Ephesians 4 to be more humble. It's not about, listen, it's, it's not about how we, we feel we should be recognized in the church or what clout or what title or what power we should have. It's about remembering how Christ lived, God in human flesh. It's not enough for us to possess the knowledge that we need to be living lives of humility. Humility of living must possess us. Then gentleness. Be humble and then gentle. It's sometimes translated as meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness or gentleness is strength being brought under control. And the word picture here is of a horse that's being broken. So you have the strength of a horse, but it's brought under control. Instead of trampling you, it carries you with that strength. And that's what is meant here by gentleness. Strength being brought under control. Patience is next. Humble, gentle. Patience is the same thing as being long-suffering. It's the ability to put up with provocation and not fight back. Christians should be known more for their actions than for their reactions, it's often been said. And we can liken this to having two dogs up here on the platform. Okay, I want you to imagine, if you will, a little yappy dog over here and a big Great Dane over here. And um, the little yappy dog just starts to get right on, onto the Great Dane. You know, yep, 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 arf, 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 arf. And the, great, and the Great Dane just kind of sits there and he goes, uh-huh, okay, whatever you say, little yappy dog. And then the Great Dane, you know, he just looks at the little yappy dog and he knows he could just rip his head off if he wanted to, just to get him to stop doing that. But he just kind of sits there and takes it. And the little yappy dog just keeps on going, come on, you want to go? I'm not so small, I can take you. And the Great Dane just kind of sits there and looks over at him and says, yeah, you and what dog, pal? Well, I'm just kidding. but I think you kind of get the picture of what I'm saying here. 
This is a good example of what Paul means by patience. It's not that the great Dane is a weakling. It's just that he knows, listen, he knows the damage he could inflict if he were to respond to the little yappy dog the same way that it is treating him. So he does nothing. Patience under provocation. And oh, how we need more people in the church who are willing to be Great Danes and not little yappy dogs. It's all Great Danes here. We're all Great Danes. And then adding to patience and gentleness, Paul says we need to bear with one another in love. And really this means to make allowance for the faults and the failures of others, just as we hope that people will do likewise for us. And notice how this matches with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Those those nine character traits, love, joy, peace, patience, say them with me, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? And I think the church, and this is just my opinion, but I, I think the church often gets into trouble because there's so much emphasis and so much light being put on the gifts of the Spirit and not enough treatment, not enough attention on the fruit of the Spirit. They come from the same Spirit, but if we don't have the fruit down, if, if, you know, if we don't have the fruit down, how we operate with our gifts can be greatly affected. Right? That was kind of the problem in Corinth with that church in the first century. But it's as we foster, Paul says, these Christian traits of patience, godliness, right, humility, bearing with one another in love that we uh, help to maintain unity, the unity that we already possess in Christ. So um, moving on to verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The word bond here means uh, something which binds together. And remember, we don't have to make unity in the church. It's something that is given to us already. Just as we were born with one body, right? We didn't have to attach a leg or a, or a hand or a foot. At least I hope that wasn't the case with you. Um, the church is born complete as well. And it was you know, bought with the precious blood of Jesus, right? And that's what it cost God to bring Jews and Gentiles together into one place, one body, and God calls us to work at that unity to maintain it because it's a unity that was achieved through the death of our Lord Jesus. And there are many things that can drive a church body apart, and it's not like we have to agree on all things, but we can disagree agreeably, so long as we agree on the main things, right? A good watch uh, phrase for the church is actually attributed to uh, St. Augustine in the latter 3rd century. And it was this. It might sound familiar to you. In essentials, unity. Right? It all falls apart if we don't have that one. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. As we work with each other and with these things in mind, we can maintain unity in the body of Christ. Unity, Paul says, is based on what we all have in common in the church, what are they? Looking at verse 4, once again, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in and in all. Uh, I'm just going to find my place here. 
Here we go. What I just read is the foundation of the church. The Christian church rests on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus being the cornerstone. And there are seven theological pillars Paul mentions here that I just read from verses 4 to 6 that sink kind of deep down into the rock upon which the church is built, the rock being Jesus himself. And these seven pillars are so-called fundamental truths and commonalities that we share as Christians. Let's look at them quickly. The first pillar we have is one body. There are many denominations, many Baptist denominations, right? But there is one body of Christ that's made up of Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, and so on, the church universal. The second one is one spirit, right? The Holy Spirit that dwells inside us if we are a believer and who counsels us, convicts us, teaches us, leads us according to the will of God and glorifies Jesus. Then pillar number three, one hope. What's your ultimate hope today? We're called to one hope, right? What is it? Well, is it not Christ, right? the hope of glory, that when He returns for us and brings us to be with Him, that we will have a brand new version of you and me, and it'll be a perfect version. Now that is hope. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, and then one Lord, King of kings, whom we all serve together. It's Him who we're striving to bring glory to in our lives and ministries. Then the fifth pillar, one faith, the Christian faith. We all believe the same thing on essentials. The inspired body of doctrine that Jude 3 says uh, was entrusted to the saints once for all. And then there's one baptism into the body of Christ after we've received Jesus by faith and His Holy Spirit. And then finally, the seventh and a final fundamental truth or theological pillar, uh, one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So these, these seven pillars or, or truths form the foundation of our faith and they are what bring us together. Not because we all look alike, not because we all sound alike or feel the same way about things, but God brings us together so that we may grow in Him and grow together through one another ministries, right? Well, I've covered a lot of ground this morning, but what's key to remember is that it is not our job. Right? It's not our job to create unity, only to work at maintaining it. So we just do our part to make every effort to keep the unity of the bond of peace, and that is Christ. And I think when we understand that, it, it, it kind of changes how we look at the topic of unity. I came across uh, an individual... Um, in my days of pastoring, uh, who was a very gracious and sweet and godly man. He was well advanced in years, probably early 80s. And he was a real hit with our youth group. And he was a missionary for over 50 years in Angola. Over 50 years in one spot, preaching the gospel. And uh, he saw his ministry later in life to be threefold. And he said this when he was preaching, that he sought to do three things for Christ. To build up, to beautify, and to bind together. To build up, to beautify, and to bind together. And it's something that I never forgot. It stuck with me. Wouldn't it be something if we could stand before the Lord one day and he asked us, what did you do for my church? What did you do for my bride. And we could say to the Lord, I sought to build up, 
I sought to beautify. And I sought to bind together. It's never too late. Listen. I've, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes in ministry. But we learn. We learn from those mistakes. There's still time to be able to go before the Lord no matter what we've done, no matter what our failures, to say I've built up, I've beautified, and I've bound together. So we don't want to be like the devil. We don't want to be like the devil who breaks things down. Father had a son, and I'm going to end on this. Father had a son, and he gave him a bundle of sticks to break up. The father came back a short time later and found the bundle still there as it was. The son was frustrated, and he couldn't break the bundle. He tried to break it over his knee. He threw it against the wall. He stomped on it. Couldn't break it apart. father said, no, that's not how you do it, son. So he got a knife, and he untied it. And then he proceeded to break each individual stick. Ping, ping. That is what the devil does. He tries to separate us so that he can break us up and break us down. And divided, we fall. But God puts us in a bundle, ties us together in Christ, calls us the church, unifies us and blesses us. We sing, bind us together, O Lord, bind us together. And the Lord answers, I have now maintained what I've done for you. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this Word today. It's a light for our path, food for our souls, wisdom for the journey that is the Christian life. I pray that You'd bless and encourage us as we go home this morning, that You'd bring peace to our homes, peace to our relationships at work, and in the church and help us to remember to build up and to beautify and to bind together the people of God for Christ's glory. And in His name we pray. Amen.